Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is The Age of Ecology on Ideas. In his 1949 inauguration speech, U.S. President Harry Truman put a new word into general circulation. The word was underdeveloped, and he used it to describe the countries of Asia, Africa, and Latin America which the U.S. proposed to aid. Development was conceived as a one-way street to a modernized, market-driven society. Forty years of hindsight shows it to have been an ecological catastrophe. Development, disintegrated social structures, and disrupted traditional patterns of subsistence without producing a livable alternative. Local communities lost control of the forests, soils, and waters they had once husbanded. The new emphasis on production for world markets led to soil erosion, water problems, and epidemic deforestation. Often the main sufferers have been women. It is women who have to walk further for water, fodder, and fuel when subsistence breaks down, and women who are marginalized when modernization destroys traditional powers and prerogatives based on gender. Tonight, in the fourth program of the Age of Ecology, we examine the link between women, development, and ecology. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Environmentalism in North America has often been portrayed by its opponents as a kind of middle-class indulgence, a concern only the well-to-do can afford. The charge is unfair, but it does reflect the fact that for most North Americans, environment is an abstract category. We may worry about topsoil loss, but we don't depend on a particular soil to subsist. If the avocados from California don't look nice today, there's always the melons from Israel or the kiwis from New Zealand. Things are otherwise in the countries of the South, whose soils are often the source of our luxuries. There, environmentalism didn't begin as what we'd call environmentalism at all. It began with people defending their own subsistence, and therefore defending the environments in which they subsisted. One such case was the Chipko movement, which appeared as a protest against deforestation in the early 1970s in the Himalayan region of northeastern India. It was a movement of village women who adopted the tactic of embracing the trees, which is what Chipko means, as a last-ditch defense of their own safety and subsistence. The Chipko movement is one of the subjects taken up by Indian writer Vandana Shiva in a book called Staying Alive, Women, Ecology, and Development. Vandana Shiva lived in Canada in the 1970s, taking a PhD in quantum physics from the University of Western Ontario. She then returned to her native Dehradun in the same part of India that Chipko arose, where she established the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy. Chipko was then at its peak, and she was quickly drawn to activism as well as scholarship. Recently, she taught for a term at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. I met with her there and recorded the following interview. She told me first about the period in the mid-70s when Chipko confronted the Indian state. In 1976, the private contractor system 
had been brought to a halt because of Chipko. Because the first demand of Chipko was there's too much of logging for profit, for private profit. The government was very smart. They got rid of the private contractors and set up a public sector corporation to do the same job. So it was no more private profits. It was now national revenue. And in 77, it was a, a government contract being operated on by a labor contractor that the local women started to resist. Now, because it was directly the government involved, there was far more militarization. It was the first time the police was brought to ensure that logging could take place. And that's when the women basically ran tree to tree. And they were arrested too. But they didn't stop. Just newer and newer villages, the women kept pouring out and coming onto the site. And it went on for, for days, and new things kept happening. All kinds of things kept happening. They had ceremonies to try sacred threats around the tree, which is the sacred thread ceremony we have where sisters try threads to their brothers. And it's a relationship of love and protection. And had all kinds of ceremonies. Daily there was a new ceremony taking place in the forest. Is this when the lanterns were brought? Uh, yes, the loggers this, was also, as well? this was also the, the location where the lanterns were brought. And when the forester asked them why, why the lanterns in the daylight, didn't they know it was bright? And they said, this is for you to see the light. And that's also where that interaction that created the slogan happened, where the forester said, you're blocking revenues, you're blocking timber. Forests mean timber raisin and revenue. And the women said, no, the forests mean soil, water, and pure air. And that slogan then became kind of or the alternative perspective on forest forestry and then nature at large. And that slogan got carried all over the country and started Chipko's all over. Why was Chipko a women's movement? What made it a women's movement? What made it a women's movement is the fact that in Garhwal, it is the women who do all the work related to the forest. And to do that work on a sustainable basis, they have always had their belief systems built around the fact that the forest is the source of all survival. So they have songs about it, they have regulations, communal regulations on blocking over exploitation. They have rituals that remind them that the trees are the source of life for the field. But when they lose, start losing out on water, when the fodder sources and fertilizer sources start getting scarce as the forests start disappearing, is the women who can sense how the agricultural productivity is falling. And they know why it's falling, because they have the knowledge of what maintains it. And when they have to walk further over water, it's their legs that have to walk further. So they have, in every sense, a multiple experience of what deforestation is about and what the forests support in the hill areas. What are the consequences of deforestation? What were they reacting to? The slow consequence that they were reacting to was basically an erosion of the agricultural base. As you know, the Himalayas are extremely high gradient slopes, fed by rains that come three months in the entire year. So on those slopes, the only way to maintain water and moisture through the year and not lose soil as well as water during the rainy season is linked very much to the organic matter that you add to the soil on the terraces. All that comes from the forests either directly in the form of leaf litter or through the animals, which are crucial 
the animal and livestock population is not a pressure on the Himalayas. Without it, you can't do agriculture in the Himalaya without livestock. The link between livestock and land is absolutely essential. And some of the areas where deforestation has become extremely severe in 82, I remember, was the worst year. 82, the first time I personally saw distress sale of cattle because there was no fodder to feed them from the forest. And very soon after that, agriculture stopped because without cattle, there's no way you can do agriculture. That was the first slow kind of. In the 60s, the women say, in the 60s, they went from self-sufficiency to dependency. 60s is the benchmark if you go into different villages where deforestation accelerated and agricultural productivity declined. The drying of water, of water resources linked in the same kind of way to the lack of conservation, the absence of forest cover, doesn't allow a holding back of the rainfall that comes in three months to feed springs throughout the year. And the disappearance of springs that used to be next to every village, which is why villages got set up, they got set up to sources of clean drinking water. Uh, and springs in, in the Himalayas are, are like springs here where you get bottled spring water, you know, up in Maine or up somewhere else, absolutely pure, good, filtered water. Now, as they disappear, the only water sources left are the low-flowing rivers and valleys. So the women have to start climbing down 10 miles, up 10 miles every day for one one little bowl of water, diseases start spreading again because people start getting to stagnant pools instead of the fresh, clear stream, which has disappeared because of the lack of forest cover. But the most dramatic of all in the Himalayas was the fact that first in 72 and then in 78, two rivers, basically just river systems collapsed because of landslides. The landslides were so huge that they blocked the rivers. And when the rivers released the waters through these blocked dams, the floods went all the way down to Calcutta. All the way down to Calcutta. Because in one particular blockade, it was a four-mile-long lake that was formed on the Ganges, upstream near this place called Uttarkashi. Now, those were events that really brought the very physical survival of people, because villages were washed away. And in a real sense, the people have started recognizing that deforestation up on the slope means landslides lower down. So their physical survival is at stake in the immediate. It's not just the long-term decline, ecological decline, not merely longer walks for water, but basically just the stability of the Himalayan slopes. The Chipko movement eventually succeeded in winning a governmental ban on logging in the Himalayas in 1981. For Vandana Shiva, this movement was just one instance of a struggle now going on all over India, a struggle not just against certain dams or forestry schemes, but against development as a philosophy, a way of receiving the world. She sees a perfect example of this philosophy in what was called the Green Revolution, the introduction in the Punjab district of a new agriculture based on high-yielding hybrid strains of cereal grain developed by the Rockefeller Foundation. Very dramatically, the two shifts that took place with the Green Revolution in, in agriculture that aren't talked about when the miracles about the Green Revolution are talked about is that it robbed the farmer, the man or the woman, of his or her mind. No more was the farmer a thinking being. 
he or she was now onwards a passive receptor of external ideas coming from four or five centers of agric international agricultural research. And in the same way, the same thing happened to the natural resource base of the land. That all agriculture, especially in the third world, had been a fully internal input system. Trees linked to livestock, linked to soil, reproducing each of these systems through recycling year after year after year after year, needing nothing from outside, in fact producing surpluses that could feed other organized forms of society outside agriculture. Livestock, of course, disappeared as a part of farming with the Green Revolution because tractorization totally displaced the need for animal power. And trees totally disappeared with the concept of Green Revolution because now it was just crops, with their production had to be maximized. And the soil now onwards was just a passive receptacle of inputs to be purchased on markets. And the inputs were seed, which till then had been a product of that same soil and went back to that same soil and produced grain as well as seed. So the seed was more than one entity till the Green Revolution. It was both the food for human beings as well as a source for its own reproduction. The Green Revolution created a first time an ontological split in the nature of the seed. The seed was now no more grain and the grain now could no more be seed. And seed had to be purchased on the market. And the seeds that had to be purchased in the market were engineered in a certain kind of way so that the internal input cycles of the farm were no more relevant. In fact, the seed was manufactured to make the seed free of these internal input cycles and to make it dependent on external inputs of chemicals of which a new build-up had taken place after the war. And the nature of the seed also meant other balances got destroyed, so you needed chemicals also to control pests. And seeds that were hungry for chemicals were also very thirsty for new amounts of water, usually about three or four times the traditional varieties, so that you needed large irrigation systems through the year, around the year, because part of what the Green Revolution designed was seeds that were could be cropped in multiple ways. They were season insensitive, they were photo insensitive. So you needed water through the year. You didn't shift crop to crop depending on the rainfall and climate patterns. The same, you had to basically engineer the environment for the seed. So you had to have abundant water, you had to have massive inputs. And for all this, you needed credit. And for that credit, you needed to go to the World Bank and other aid agencies. And usually what's forgotten when people talk about debt is that those were the kinds of programs which before development were processes of daily living and subsistence in which people didn't have to turn even to their own bureaucracies, forget international development agencies. They didn't have to turn to their cities. They were the producers and there was a clear political base of of power in the rural areas based on the knowledge that they were the real producers. The Green Revolution gave a new kind of power based literally on bargaining over prices of inputs and sale of commodities. That the only politics it left possible for the farmer 
was the politics of the marketplace, of prices. The farmer, the producer had been turned into a consumer, more than anything else. Having robbed both the farmer as well as the ecosystem of their basic sense of productivity and their sense of knowing where productivity comes from, a self-perception of, of productivity. When the Green Revolution, because of its inherent non-sustainability, ran into problems, could not maintain yields in the same way, could not maintain profits of the same magnitude, the problem was located not with this process of social and natural transformation, but into other political processes. Is there disillusionment amongst those farmers now? Do they see what you see, uh, the costs of destroying the traditional way of farming? Yeah, this is something I was saying earlier. They don't see the costs in that same way. Like I said, they see the costs just much, as much as an um, American consumer who's getting worried about the environment, sees the costs more in terms of, does this package say it can be recycled? It's the only question a consumer in a supermarket will raise about the environment. Is this package recyclable? The gaze has narrowed down through participating for 20 years in supermarket purchase. In a very similar way, a Green Revolution farmer has had his mind narrowed down and by and large, the Green Revolution farmer is, is a he. Because one thing that the Green Revolution systematically has done is remove women from agriculture. Punjab is so conspicuously different from the rest of India in that you don't see women on the fields. You just do not see a single woman working on the fields. It has turned women into genuine parasites in, 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 in that sense of removing them from what is productive activity. Everywhere else you go, you see women doing certain jobs on the fields. Punjab, you don't see women in the fields. And you would have 30 years ago. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You would have seen women working on the fields earlier. But the Green Revolution changed the whole gender presence in agriculture. Now, the Green Revolution farmer, who's a he, after 20 years of participating in the Green Revolution, thinks very much like the consumer in the supermarket. He's a consumer in the supermarket of agrochemicals. And just as the only question a consumer raises is, is not does the forest from which this product comes suffer when it's first harvested or does the soil in which these off-season strawberries are grown get hurt? That's not the questions that are possible because you're not living in those soils. It's not in your imagination. Your imagination, as it's been perked up by the environmental consciousness, is around the packaging. And your politics then gets focused on the recycling of packaging and not on the costs, ecological costs of what the substance itself takes to produce for world markets. In a similar way, the Punjab farmer, the Green Revolution farmer, has had his mind narrowed down to that interaction between subsidies, prices, and production. Does not see ecology as relevant to all this. You go into what are called more backward areas, the resistance of, is of a different quality. They worry about seeds. They worry about returning to a farming that's more under their control in the genetic sense. Genetic diversity is part of the genius of traditional Indian agriculture. In some areas, nearly 300 different varieties of rice were cultivated, each adapted to some season, soil, pest, or perhaps just some ceremonial use. 
This is part of what is lost when Green Revolution-style monocultures take over. And the Green Revolution is not an isolated case. There is now also an internationally-backed White Revolution, so-called, in dairying. The White Revolution has the same parallels, that it takes the cow by itself, as not linked to the farm, takes the cow only for its milk production capacity, separates it then from its animal energy. And it's, it's a terrible tragedy has happened in South India. I don't think it is. Probably something I haven't even written in the book is that because cattle, just like plants get bred for maximizing a certain input and a certain output, cows start getting bred for maximizing milk production. Very often cows that produce more milk are extremely useless for other work functions. And in India, we've always had what are called dual-purpose cattle. The cattle need to pull bullock carts, they need to pull plows in the field, and they give, give you milk. And the same breed has to function well for both, because the male and the female are both useful. Through the White Revolution, the female for its, the dairy yields is transformed more and more, and the male calves become more and more useful, useless. So that then they're butchered. You will get very, very tasty veal in Bangalore markets for next to no price because all male calves are butchered. And now there's a total deficiency of bullock power in India, of animal energy, which is creating its own bottleneck. Because in paddy growing areas, you need lots of puddling, as they say. You really need to work the paddy fields very heavily to make them right for paddy cultivation. Why can't the males be kept for that purpose? For a number of reasons. Uh, they don't have the stamina. The, I mean, because uh, they're, the off, they're the offspring of these of, 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 specially of bred. Of exotic, yeah, okay. yeah. They're not bred for, for stamina. They're not bred for pulling weights. They're not bred with the right. They don't have the hump. Yeah. They're flat, you know. The jerseys and all are flat mm -hmm. on the head. And our, our cattle are humped, if you know, and that hump is very valued. And that's what pulls the weight. So that's what pulls the, pulls the plow and the bullock cart. So, I mean, many reasons. I'm still finding out how many reasons, but many, many reasons. You, you don't breed male offspring. You basically breed the female offspring. Can you talk for a minute about the kind of science that makes this possible and your attitude towards it? that has made possible forestry in the high slopes, that has made possible a transformation in the nature of the Indian cow, that has made the Green Revolution possible, and so on? To me, it's a kind of a one-eyed science, literally. A one-eyed science that looks with that one eye only to the market, and then tries to design instruments to feed the market. There's a very, very lovely phrase that some of the women in Chipko had once when I was talking to them. And I was talking to them precisely about this issue. I said, I mean, but doesn't, I mean, the government's setting up all these research institutions, all these development agencies, and how do you feel about them? And this woman said, without food, fodder, and water, any thinking, any thought that devotes itself to developing new technologies is a one-eyed thinking. I call it, in another language, reductionist thought, in the sense that it cuts itself off from the many purposes that any object in nature or any object that human beings create is supposed to fulfill. It shuts out other dimensions of the nature of being. So it creates extremely efficient artifacts 
designs wonderful artifacts and wonderful instruments to maximize flows to the market. And it's the only flow that this one eye can see. But it doesn't have the balancing of even seeing what it destroys, leave alone being able to serve those other objectives better, those other ends better. It, it has no capacity. Institutionally, it has no capacity. Institutionally, it has been trained only to look towards the market. Its very source of nurturance, the nurturance of institutions, their sense of recognition, their sense of relevance, their sense of dynamism, comes from how market mechanisms as pushing the engine of science can direct where scientific thought will yield or will not yield. In your book, you also call this form of thought patriarchal. Today in our conversation, you seem to be emphasizing much more the market as its genesis. Is that a change or not? No, it's not a change because uh, my reading of how human history in various cultures has gone is from basically being multidimensionals, just like the dual purpose cattle, that the female and the male is needed for different values. You don't measure the bullock for yielding milk and you don't measure the cow for animal energy. They have different purposes. They serve those purposes well. That from that kind of an existence, we have moved systematically into an existence where men of every society are pulled towards the market, largely through the efforts of other men in centers of power who see the men in the village or the men in the tribal society or the men in the third world as the head of the household, the breadwinner, or a series of hierarchical terms of that kind. So that societies with division of labor are split into one-handed societies. And the one hand that links up to the market is the hand of the men of those societies. And the hand that reaches out to these men in third world societies is a patriarchal hand from centers of capitalist power. In that sense, a science that breeds through the market, given the structures of power between genders, is necessarily a patriarchal science. It is Vandana Shiva's belief that circumstances are now forcing India towards a more integrated view of the questions of gender, environment, and development that she's been discussing. Social and environmental disintegration are now so obviously linked, she says, that the very idea of development is beginning to be radically questioned. It's really in the last one or two years that there's a national level thinking, organizing, talking about these issues. And in some way, a building of an idea about an India different from where the development push took us. M larger and larger numbers of, of young people are getting attracted to that environmental movement. For the people whose very survival is at stake when a dam is built or a mine is built or an industry is set up on the agricultural land, it's not a matter of choice. It's not, even a it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of life and death. And for them, quite clearly, to say no to that destruction is their statement of con wanting to live. So both trends are very strong. And in that kind of sense, I feel the genuine environmental conflicts, the real ecological upsurge, if it happens, will take place in countries like India, where both sides 
of the struggle sits next to each other. They live side by side. Part of the reason why Western environmentalism has been hijacked into by the technological fix response is because the pressure on nature happens way away. It's not lived by anyone in your neighborhood. You don't get the feedback. In India, that's coming all the time. It's coming to the communities that live in the destroyed system. It's coming from the communities into the mainstream. Each time, more and more numbers of people are displaced. And the environmental issue is getting very intimately tied to the issue of displacement, to the fact of uprooting of people from their cultures and their locations. And the right to culture, the right to be what you are, the right to live communally is becoming a very major issue of democracy in India. Does a minority sitting in Delhi planning development projects have a right to uproot people in that kind of sense? That is one of the biggest and most liveliest debates. But what troubles me even more than that is what's happened to society in India with the development process. And we were talking about polarized thinking, thinking that necessarily turns the other into a not me and therefore the annihilation of the other is a precondition for the continuation of my existence or my group's existence. And that's what's at the root to me of the whole problematic around gender. That is precisely the way in which the Western dichotomies around gender have been implanted worldwide that has created the battling between the sexes in a highly unproductive kind of way. In a very similar way, every community, every ethnicity, every region, every religion is going through that same kind of identity definition. Because part of the development process is that fragmenting of the mind, including the fragmenting of the identity. And the kind of violence that that's planting on a very large scale in a situation where, just like Elisha said, development is creating its own kind of scarcity. That in that situation of growth generated scarcity and development generated fragmentation, the combination is extremely volatile. And that's where I personally feel the biggest disturbance in India is taking place right now. The environmental disturbance is very severe, but the social disturb disturbance to the organic existence of India as a peopled India is, is even more severe. Wouldn't you say in the last analysis that they're the same thing? Yes, they are the same thing. They are the same thing. It's just that the environmentalists haven't looked at the other, which is why I kind of stated. To me, they're part of the same ecological breakdown. Sanjana, thank you so much. Oh, For Vandana Shiva, development is more than just an economic practice. It's a world view. The Green Revolution farmers of the Punjab may have thought all they were getting from the Rockefeller Foundation was a more productive way of farming. What they ended up with was a new way of seeing the world. The Green Revolution, as Vandana Shiva says, dropped them off their minds. Development implies a type of person as well as a type of practice. What constitutes this modern type of personality and how it differs from the personality of traditional society 
has been the study of a friend and collaborator of Vandana Shiva's called Frederick Apfel Marglen, whom you'll be hearing in the balance of tonight's program. Apfel Marglen is a professor of anthropology at Smith College in Massachusetts. Her interest in this question has been shaped by her own experience of the encounter between the modern West and the peoples it wants to modernize and develop. She grew up as the daughter of French parents in colonial North Africa, and then lived for many years in India, where she studied classical dance. Later, as an anthropologist and writer, she focused on what had bothered her deeply as a girl in North Africa and a young woman in India, the easy assumption that Western science and rationality are superior to traditional forms of knowledge, with the corollary that development is the world's destiny. This led her to try to understand the nature of the modern personality which development wants to foster. We spoke recently at her home in Shutesbury, Massachusetts. Basically, I argue that the modern form of personhood is a tripartite form of personhood in which you have a self that owns a body and a mind. The self is the seat of will that controls the body and activates the mind. The mind is the seat of rationality. And rationality is unsituated socially, historically. It does not belong to any particular time and place. It is transcendent. And it is a transcendent agency that gives one a point of view from an outside Archimedean point. That Archimedean point is unsituated and allows you to talk and view and analyze everything that you put your mind to. And that is its characteristic, and that is what makes it dominating. And that kind of knowledge then renders either invisible or certainly illegitimate, if visible, a kind of knowledge that is situated and embodied and therefore shifts. Because if you are situated, then what you see will depend on where you are located. And if you move, that will change. If your vis-a-vis moves uh, versus a sort of up-from-above point of view which rationality gives you. This new imperial self, Apfel Marglen believes, emerged when labor became a commodity. As capitalism developed, work was standardized and fragmented. Its rhythms no longer derived from the body of the worker or the task in hand. They came from the clock and the exigencies of organizing production. This process required something unprecedented, interchangeable workers, workers whose only relevant attribute was their labor power. And these workers had to be forced into this new mold. This mode of laboring is, as recognized by Marx, as recognized by Adam Smith, is extremely boring and debilitating mentally, debilitating emotionally, debilitating socially. Nobody wants to, doesn't produce this spontaneously and nothing, and there were no habits. These habits had to be created for this new method of working. To create these new habits, these new working habits, you had to have supervision. And here, relying very heavily on Foucault's historical work, 
especially in the, the birth of the prison in that book, he discusses Jeremy Bentham's architectural device, the panopticon, where a person sits in an elevated tower and around that surveilling person in individualized slots are put the people who are either working or students or patients or whatever. And the lighting is so that the surveying person can see those he's surveying but cannot be seen himself. So this is called a panopticon. And Foucault shows that this became a principle from an architectural device. It's a pervading principle of modern society, panoptism, which is this discipline and surveillance so that people do in fact produce this labor that can be quantified, that's reliable, that's monotonous, that's precise, and so forth, that people will not produce spontaneously. Now what I argue, taking this a little a, a small step forward, is that you could not rely solely on this sort of police type of uh, methods. You had to rely on new habits that had to be produced spontaneously. And for the worker to produce this spontaneously, they had to believe this was good in itself. Mm-hmm. To believe it's good in itself, it had to be legitimized by something that they would not associate precisely with this surveying, surveillance function in schools and factories and other institutions, because that is oppressive and that is recognized as being oppressive. And I argue that that something, in order to find legitimacy, had to be socially unsituated, transcendent, and something that already had a great deal of cultural prestige, and that something is rationality. And in schools particularly, all these exercises teach you the value of rationality, the value of disembodied thought, and the value of the control of the body. That's internalized and produces this spontaneous behavior that is required. It becomes a habit, and, and it also produces the modern person. The reproduction of this new kind of person, the modern person, does not happen in a community or kinship context. It happens through the institutions of society that teach the internalized panopticon, that teach that the body has to be controlled, the body is a natural, unknowing object that has to be controlled by the rational mind. And in order to do that, you had to totally devalue the kind of learning and the kind of embodied knowing and passing on of embodied knowledge that used to happen in pre-commoditized societies and times. Therefore, the production of new people became associated with the fertility of nature. Women's fertility became equated to the fertility of nature because these are bodily processes. Conception, gestation, birthing, lactation, and menstruation Mm -hmm. are bodily processes which become, in this new tripartite person, become natural processes separated from the mind and from knowledge. They become things that just happen, just like a tree grows naturally. And therefore, these processes had to be under the control of the rational mind. These processes 
Furthermore, in women, we're seen in the 19th century, and there's plenty of evidence mm -hmm. for that and plenty of research, we're seen to be in opposition to the development of the mind. If women developed their mind, then they could no longer have babies. Their uteri would dry up and wither. This all gets played out very clearly in the foundation of Smith College, my own college, which, which is the first American college for women that gave women the same curriculum as men, as the Ivy League, as the elite men. And it's raging controversy that this would ruin the race, the elite race. Their regenerative uh, capacities were seen as antithetical to their intellectual capacities. And I argue that this is because the female body was made analogous to nature, or rather nature as nature came to be seen in the 17th, 18th century, that is uh, inert, passive, not a knowing agent, as something that must be controlled. And therefore women's uh, generative capacities necessitated control, controlled by men, controlled by uh, the rational knowledge and expert knowledge of these natural functions, that is gynecology, uh, psychiatry, all the medical discourse that arose precisely at that time, and uh, the management of women's pregnancies, the delivering of women's babies, this whole thing that is documented so well by many feminists, in particular by Emily Martin in her book. And therefore women became the producer of the raw material of modern society. And that it was done through this naturalization of their uh, regenerative function. And this is contrasted with non-commoditized societies where the generation and regeneration of people and of everything else, knowledge, the world, trees, water, houses, food, names, social arrangements, is what the society is about. That's what everybody does. Men, women, that's what the business of the group is about, is the generation and regeneration of everything of value, including people. Whereas, with modern society, making new people then becomes reproduction. And it is no longer what the society is about. The society is about production. So, in traditional or pre-modern, non-commoditized, you've said, societies, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nature is drawn up into culture, in effect, and no real nature-culture distinction is drawn. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that nature is drawn up into culture. I would simply say that our division of culture and nature does not exist. Or ours by ours, I mean the contemporary modern uh, view that culture is the domestication of nature. And that view of nature as, you know, being domesticated, being transformed through the culture of human beings, is a process that happens with our own bodies. Our bodies is considered nature, natural. And we domesticate our bodies. This, we have domesticated our bodies 
and we have controlled our bodies, and particularly the female body. The way the male body is controlled is that for the male, development of the mind and of rationality helped the body to function better as a productive body, whereas for females, the development of the rational mind hindered female procreativeness. And you're arguing, in effect, still does, even though these Victorian beliefs may seem silly. It is still impossible for a woman to be a woman and participate in this vision of what a person is. Well, I mean, I see that the whole domestication movement, you know, the natural place of woman is in the domestic sphere, and her destiny is motherhood and wifehood. All of that ideology, of course, is the ideology produced by this commoditization of labor. And the second wave of feminism, that is the wave that came in the late 60s, early 70s, was a rejection of that ideology of domestication. And the rejection is, no, this is not our natural destiny. Our natural destiny is not dictated by our biology, but we can develop our minds and freely choose what we want to make of ourselves. Now, from my perspective, I argue that this movement accepts the logic created by commoditization of labor. It accepts the division between the biologized body and the mind and the woman rejects being domesticated and rejects her destiny as a reproducer and demands the right to develop her mind achieve be recognized and do the things that men do but that equality with men does not question what commoditization has created and in particular, it does not question this division between a naturalized body and a mind that controls this body. And therefore, going with this, the division between culture and nature. And it does not see that the generation and regeneration of life, be it human life or non-human life, is what we ought to be worrying about, particularly today, but at any times, and that's what non-communitized societies were concerned with, and we ought to be concerned with, and this is a concern of women and men. It's a con it ought to be the concern of the collective, of the collectivity, of the human group. And in that concern, that concerns the regeneration of everything of value, which includes what we call nature, as well as human society, requires all the energies that both genders possess. In a recent essay called Women's Blood, Challenging the Discourse of Development, Apfel Marglen has developed her distinction between commoditized and non-commoditized societies by examining the meaning of menstrual taboos in the South Indian state of Orissa. In the community she describes, there is an annual festival of the Menzies of the Earth. During the festival, the Earth becomes untouchable in the same way that the women of the community are believed to be untouchable during their monthly periods. Menstrual taboos, to the modern mind, are both a form of superstition 
and a form of discrimination against women. But Apfel Marglin shows them as a point of articulation between the cycles of society and the cycles of nature. The menses of the earth is when the earth uh, must not be touched. It is celebrated for three days, or four days actually, just like women's monthly menses. There's no agricultural work. Everybody stops, and all the men go out of the village, and the women celebrate in the village, and the men celebrate around a temple of a goddess on a hill outside of the village. They all pitch their tents, they cook their food, and they make merry there. And the women make merry uh, back in the village, but they do no work. It's the old women who do the cooking, or they prepare food beforehand, and then they eat, for, eat it for three days. And what emerges from what men and women say and what they do is that that season, the season of the manses, is when, in preparation for the reunion of the cloud and the earth, the cloud and the soil. The clouds and the soil have been separated, which is the hot period, which is the fallow, which is the regenerative period of the earth, which is unproductive. And it's preparative, it's a, it's a period that prepares for the joining of cloud or rain and earth, which is the then the period at which you sow and which produces germination. And they all talk about it in terms of menstruation is necessary, the observation of menstruation is necessary for germination, for avoid for life. And they speak the same whether it's human beings or, or seeds or plants. There's no difference. And they emphasize that. And when you ask about it, they say, you know, are you stupid? Don't you know how do you, do you take life? You know, when I'm asking about seeds, they say, don't you know? How did you take life? Because your mother menstruated. If she hadn't menstruated, she, you wouldn't be there, you know. Uh, so I use that and, and uh, you know, going into depth to show that there's no separation between nature and culture and that uh, continuity, regeneration, life depends on chosen actions of human beings to observe the regularities of the cosmos. If human beings, through their knowledge and their will, do not consciously establish, establish rituals, and the root for the word ritual is ritu, the Sanskrit ritu, meaning menses as well as cycles of the season, these rituals, which are observances that place humans in harmony with the regularities of nature, then the continuity of life, be it human life or non-human life, is threatened. And we, of course, we, modern commoditized beings, see the reproduction, you know, what takes place in the bodies of women, as something that happens automatically. You do not have to do rituals for that. That's superstitious. You do not need knowledge. To make a baby, you don't need a PhD. On the contrary, a PhD will hinder your ability to make, or it used to be thought like that, hinder your ability to make a baby, because that's totally separate. And I'm trying to show a non-commoditized world in which continuity of life depends on 
seeing that we are part of nature and choosing to live according to the cosmic order. And if we don't choose that, we will endanger the continuity of life, which is what we're doing. Ideas tonight, you've been listening to part four of The Age of Ecology. Heard on tonight's program were Frederick Apfel Marglin and Vandana Shiva. Writer and narrator, David Cayley. The series continues next Friday with a profile of ecologist John Todd. Production assistants, Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell. Technical operations by Lorne Tulk. Producer, Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. Be sure to mention ecology, and please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>